Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we are back live thanks to the hardworking engineers over at T-Mobile. Jeff was able to join us once again. As always, we always get things going here at Digital 410 Media. Then right before the show, something blows up. However, it wasn't our fault, but the fine people who work hard over at T-Mobile, despite the fact that my phone don't work half the time and our 5G is horrible. Thanks so much for at least getting Jeff back online and joining us. And joining us as always, because he doesn't have T-Mobile, Henry Sledge. Henry, how are you doing tonight, sir? Doing well. Glad to be here. How are you guys? Oh, I think we're losing your audio a little bit. And Jeff, how are you? Can you hear us all right? Yeah, I can hear Henry a there little we bit go. better than, there we you, go. than you there. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? Can everybody hear nah, me now? One of those nights. I think we're good. So how's everybody doing? It's been a while. We've uh, been here and around and uh, back and forth and putting up best up episodes and uh, just uh, getting along the best we can. How's everybody doing? It's been a while. Can you still not hear me? Uh, you're fading in and out, Don. I don't know why. Well, to answer your question, can you hear me? I hear you fine. I hear, okay, I hear you like so to answer right your question, one. doing uh, doing just fine. You know, getting ready for Christmas, uh, getting getting back on track after everything that's been going on. Christmas is a crazy time of year. I mean, it's crazy for us now, but you know, Jeff and I spoke about this in the past, where like Christmas was always the ever non stopping moving goalposts of when the boys are going to be home from the war. It was always, oh, if you get, you know, we'll be home by right. Christmas this year, and then next year they move that goalpost again. We'll be home by Christmas this year, and then they move the goalpost again. It's just, it's like it never, it never stopped. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. You, you hear me all right, Jeff? No, no, like I said, I can hear Henry good. You're fading out pretty, pretty good there. Um. <sighs> Sorry about that. I, 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 I don't know why. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things. But I I heard I heard what you said, and and I think, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Christmas has has always been that kind of that indexing point for our boys overseas, and um, you know, you certainly, um, you, you know, obviously you wanted to come home, but in the event that you didn't, you certainly didn't want it to happen around Christmas, just for the sake of your families. And you know, yeah, it's a big time of year for us. And um, I think we may have talked about this before on the show um but if not i think it's you know it's worth mentioning again if we did um you know those telegrams you know during the war um three to four weeks out typically before you know uh, we lost that soldier sailor airman or marine uh three to four weeks later is when the family would get notified so that kind of really makes you think about all of those things that happened in November that it would have been right around Christmas time. You know, I mean, immediately I think we think of, of Tarawa, but so many other actions that happened in the month of November from 42, 43, 44, um, that how, how that must've been for those families around Christmas, you know, that, that their son or their father or brother was, was already been gone about a month and that's when they're getting that telegram. So I think that's really important uh, to think about. You know, we think about Christmas time and the war. And one thing I think gets kind of overlooked because we all see the pictures of the guy underneath the shelter half on Thanksgiving eating a turkey leg, and we see the photos during Christmas. But let's not forget New Year's Eve too. So 
not only are they not around for the family for Thanksgiving, they're not around for, I mean, that's just, you know, there's three major holidays, at least in the American culture, right there alone, that these guys are overseas, whether in a foxhole, on a ship, in a sub, you know, in the Pacific, you know, sitting over in Europe somewhere, maybe North Africa, Italy. And I can only imagine, and I think out of the three of us, Jeff, you could probably attest to this the most, uh, being in a similar situation. I, that's probably the probably that and your birthdays when your battle buddies, your guys in your, you know, your platoon, they really, they really are probably the most important for you because you don't have that family. And so they're, your, they're your substitute. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a time where, you know, you spend a lot of time in close quarters with somebody it's going to happen. You have your little tips, and, you know, your little argument, like anything else, right? Like in any marriage, really. Um, but, you know, now we have no always... idea what you mean by that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'll have to find a better analogy. Keep going. <laughs> I mean, um, but but yeah, it, you know, you definitely start coming together around the holidays just because it's a natural thing to do a family and and those brothers in arms next to you become your family. And um, they may be like your real family where you may only want to see them once or twice a year and you're <laughs> stuck with them every day for however long you're deployed. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, yeah, you always got, we, we kind of got a little closer and you're right. You, you're you're kind of maybe a little extra looking out. You're kind of a little extra checking your own six um, just because it's just, you know, that's not when you want to go. Yeah. Certainly, you know, you don't want to go at all, obviously, but yeah. There's also got to be the time where the the more mundane tasks get to be a little more irritating. I would imagine it's like early. I got to do this on Christmas Eve. Really today? We can't. We can't do this tomorrow. I can't burn and burn this human waste tomorrow. I guess the latrine doesn't clean itself. But there's just. By the way, real quick, speaking of friends and family, shout out to the YouTube. Uh, Gabe Rivieras checking in, and uh, JT Rocker ninety nine says, "Howdy, gang." Um, we kind of have some exciting news and I, and I didn't run this by you guys. Cause I thought, well, you'll probably agree. Um, first and foremost, why don't Henry, you announce the big life change in our, our fellow listener here, Gabe's life and give him a shout out on that. Say again, Don, can you guys not hear me? I, I've got you. I've got you. Yeah. I was going to have Jeff, uh, you know, kind of announce, um, our friend Gabe is having a huge life change and we wanted to congratulate him on that. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I actually texted him, I don't know, man, it was what, 30 minutes ago, buddy? Before you lost your uh, service on T-Mobile? Yeah, <laughs> I, I texted Gabe to see if it was okay. Because, uh, yeah, I, I'd love to, to do the honors of that. So, yeah, Gabe, Gabe Rivera is a, a longtime buddy of mine, and he's just one of those great reenactors. If you don't follow him, you're wrong. You need to start following him and see those amazing pictures of him and his buddies. Um, he was a huge part of the National Museum of Pacific Wars, uh, you know, living history program down there. That's where I met him and was really lucky to, to, to work with him there and, you know, just to stay in touch, even though he's in some weird part of the country, like, I don't know, Washington State or something goofy like that. Weirdo. But that's not going to last too long because he has officially joined the United States Navy and very excited for him uh, to see. I think he said his A school is going to be down in Pensacola, Florida, oh, down in my places. area. So that's going to be uh, a change. But yeah, so yeah, Don, you were cutting a little bit in and out. So I thought you said somebody had a wife change. No, well, <laughs> like, well, I'm sure somebody, I'm sure somebody out there listening is, and you know, they're they've been trying to 
get their mind off of that. Now you just reminded them again. You know, they stopped listening <laughs> to the country music. They said, I'm going to listen to WTSP, so I ain't got to worry about the divorce. And then you bring that up. So, you know, so much for that. If you guys are listening on YouTube, thank you so much. If my if my uh, voice is cutting in and out, good news is everything's recorded here locally and everything sounds fantastic. And so for those who are listening to this tomorrow, they won't know. They'll say, what the hell they keep saying? Don sounds great. And so if you're watching on YouTube, just download it, download it on the app tomorrow and you'll hear the whole conversation as if you're sitting in the room with us. And because Gabe is enlisting, and hopefully you guys can hear me, I want to throw this out there. Um, Gabe, send us, obviously, boot camp times. You know, you don't have a lot of free time. They're right emails to your favorite podcast but when time you know it comes available we do want to hear from you and anybody else if you're a frequent listener or even a new listener to this podcast and you just enlisted in the service please email us we want to do you know we want to keep up with you guys get your firsthand experiences email us at mail call at wtsp world war com, and we'll make a segment where we read our letters from our her guys who are currently in boot camp, or even if you're active server, we want to hear from you too. But I think a lot of our listeners who maybe don't have firsthand military experience would kind of like to hear modern day stories of boot camp so they can compare them to stories like we heard from, you know, You'll Be Sorry by Sid Phillips and the like. Yeah, you know, modern day stories of boot camp, they're always a good laugh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting too to see how much has changed compared to when you went not too long ago. Because we've all heard the stories how, you know, they've, they've had to change things up a little bit. So it'd be interesting to you know, kind wow. of contrast and compare from when you were there. Yeah, it's been 21 years since I was in basic. So I think it's changed exponentially over the past couple of decades, although it doesn't feel that long I was going to say, isn't it crazy how the older you get, 20 years doesn't seem like much. Oh, I did that 20, well, me, I'm 20 years on my head. It's just like 20 years does not seem like anything nowadays. It's just it, how time passes as you get older is just weird. It's, it's incredible. And, you know, I think it was a World War II that, that gave me the best analogy about how fast life goes. And he said that life is like a roll of toilet paper and, and every sheet represents one year. The sheets are all the same size. You sure that wasn't a director for whatever cut reason, of as you get closer to the end of the roll. This is a great analogy, cooking. by the way. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's true. It really is. And I, yeah, I've seen that now. Um, I, I, I think every profession i feel like i've ever been in i was like the youngest guy in the room right and naturally that's going to stop at you know becoming a high school teacher you're surrounded by young people all day long um but now i'm finding that there's teachers that i work with that i'm technically old enough to be their father and it's like mm-hmm. what happened to me being the young guy Not anymore. now we all have you know we know i'm the dick clark of my generation right you think i'm like 25 years old but i'm not uh, like so, yeah, it's been it's been weird to see how much time has gone by and to see these young people and, uh, you know, watching them grow. And of course, I see it with my own children. And it, guys, it really does put things into perspective. Uh, we say, oh, 20 years ago wasn't that long ago. OK, so 80 years. Exactly. Was really not that that exactly. long. Ago. And that's what's so great about this podcast and our listeners and what they do and, and what we do to keep that going, because. Once we lose that kind of that primary connection with the past, World War II will become just as obscure as, as you know, the Peloponnesian Wars, because there's there's nobody left. Right. There's nobody yep. there to tell us. And then it fades off and then it's just books and video games. And we got it. Yeah, we got to We got to keep that that connection going beyond the books, just those stories and these personal experiences and the more. Um, you know, I forget who, who said it, but it, something like, you know, you, you, uh, 
I may butcher this quote, but something about you die twice in your life. Once, yep. you know, when your body goes and the second time when nobody when you're, s- speaks your name. Correct. Uh, once when you pass and the second time when, uh, yes, <laughs> I just yeah. butchered as well. But yeah, when either when your friends forget you or they stop talking about you, something like that. But yeah. Something like that. So let's let's just not ever stop talking about them and, and they'll be good. <laughs> let's just get that right. So we'll go on the old Google machine. There you go. Yeah. See, this is something we need a producer for so we can have in real time. Let's see. They say you die twice. One time when you stop breathing, the second time a bit later when somebody says your name for the last time. Yeah. See how much more elegant that is when we're not butchering it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, speaking of uh, mail call and all that, when you're sending us the email at mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com, head on over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and uh, click on that Patreon link, s- sign up and subscribe. It goes a long way to help us what we do here, as well as subscribe to our YouTube channel. Now, I know, Jeff, you were perusing around the old uh, what's the what's the scuttlebutt.com or WTSPWorldWar2.com yesterday, and you noticed a typo, and I briefly, I quickly fixed it today. But did you see the video I posted of the uh, it's called like the ni- the forty three year old man who's li- uh, the thirty five year old man who lives in nineteen forty six? I didn't click on it, but I saw it. What's that about? It's a BBC. It's a quick fifteen minute video. The BBC, where over in London, there's a guy much like us. He takes living history to the extreme. He lives in a house that he is completely outfitted to live like it's nineteen forty three. The only modern day convenience he has, he has a small LED TV hidden behind a picture frame that he watches when no one's around. And he has a small mini fridge tucked away, but everything else in his house is straight London's 1943. He also has no girlfriend, right? Correct. Okay. He mentioned the fact Either that, that or a really understanding one. No, he mentioned the <laughs> fact that he would probably have to have a a, a wife that'd be willing to have two homes. But yeah, really. But the crazy thing is, is that what that took me down a weird YouTube wormhole, and I came across this channel called um do 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 okay sorry i had to scroll up it's called crow's eye productions now the weird thing about this is the videos are done over in england somewhere and the voiceover is usually done by female very well put together but it's a crazy channel called getting dressed like what kind of weird adult nonsense these people they actually create videos to show exactly what people wore in certain centuries they're like living historians and so they have for example uh getting dressed in world war one as a young woman they have um what uh getting dressed in the 14th century as a plowman and they're actually and it's a great way for research like if you're getting into living history they have all these videos down to like the undergarments of what you know a a male dandy in the 13th century would wear and it's like super crazy but i came across them like watching these videos that they have one about world war ii um uh, we talked about it in the past. Uh, what was the female uh, the female farmers called over in Europe? The um, land, oh crikey, oh oh, it slipped my mind. But anyhow, um, the uh, they show exactly what the the women and the uh, women's uh, land corps over in uh, England wear, and it's it's pretty cool. So if like you're wanting to maybe get into a certain century or just curious about the type of clothing that they wore it's it's a pretty interesting youtube channel it's called crow's eye production or just look for getting dressed and they have hundreds of videos on here showing like what people wore through different times of throughout history and it's it's got a lot of interesting stuff on there it's like it just took me down that wormhole after watching that video that i posted on our page 
because I thought it was crazy that 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 cat, um, you know, was living like it's 1943 all the time. Yeah. Well, uh, I know we kind of had a little break in, in our communication right before we went on, but, you know, talking about, um, you know, making sure that we're speaking their names and, and they're not being forgotten and going away is, is I think that may be a great segue uh, for Henry to share uh, what you had mentioned right before we went on. If, Absolutely. If prepared to, I thought that would be. Yeah, sure. Kind of neat. Um, <clears throat> Absolutely. So as we get closer to Christmas, we are coming up into the season of the Battle of the Bulge. Iconic military action in World War II, one of my favorite to study. So everybody knows the story of my dad, Sledgehammer, being in the Pacific in the 1st Marine Division. What a lot of people don't know is that my uncle, his older brother, went to the Citadel, was commissioned a lieutenant, was, was in armor, and was in the 741st Tank Battalion. Anyway, to, to skip right ahead to where I wanted to get to, my uncle Edward, Captain Edward S. Sledge II, won a bronze star on the first day, actually it was right before, it was December 15th of 44, and I just wanted to read the citation. Um, Captain Edward S. Sledge II, 741st Tank Battalion, United States Army for heroic action on the 15th of December, 1944 in Belgium. On the evening of 15 December, 1944, in the vicinity of Wallerscheid, Germany, the tank company, which Captain Sledge was commanding, was called upon by the infantry for assistance as anti-tank defense after the pillbox area had been taken. Captain Sledge's company of tanks were to move to the area of the infantrymen from an assembly area one mile from their lines. Unfortunately, one of Captain Sledge's platoon leaders was not familiar with the situation that had developed. Fully cognizant of the fact that the situation was extremely critical, Captain Sledge fearlessly and without regard for his own personal safety, dismounted from his tank and on foot led his tanks through the dark fire swept roads and fields in order to keep them clear of mines. He steadfastly refused to take cover when the tanks drew a constant rain of heavy enemy artillery fire. He did not rest or take cover until he had led his tanks to their objective and contacted the commanding officer of the infantry unit. For the valor, devotion to duty, and superior leadership displayed by Captain Sledge reflects great credit upon himself and is in keeping with the highest tradition of the military service. Mm. And so I'm thinking he was trying to link up with units of the 2nd Infantry Division right there because they were up on the north shoulder. That's where Vollerscheid Crossroads was, right up near Monschau, uh, Rotrath, Greenkilt. Um, so I know the 741st Tank Battalion was heavily involved with in the 2nd Infantry Division and the 99th, actually, around that time. But anyway, that is my Uncle Edward's Bronze Star citation. And thank you guys for letting me read that. No, thank you. That was, that was fantastic. Yeah, that's a beautiful story of just somebody that's just has – some guys just don't have a coherent understanding of – the ever-changing situations on the battlefield like your uncle did and um you know to that that's so common thing where your guy in charge in this instance this platoon leader um just kind of for whatever reason not understanding the situation that to have what your uncle did um gosh i'm sure everybody in his unit was like that dude's the man that 
that probably was the same kind of uh, scenario as when we watch Band of Brothers and you watch Captain Spears running across. Yes. Yeah. yes. You know, like it's yeah, hey, this just count. has to be done. And, you know, I, I've been around the armored guys a little bit. I obviously have no idea how they were then. But, you know, armored guys are kind of like, you know, death before dismount now. Like mm-hmm. you know, they don't want to leave their tank. They don't want to get their boots muddy. Um, <laughs> they, they ride for a reason. And, you know, that, that, so that's kind of their, their mantra, death before dismount. <laughs> so if any of that was around back then, and I'm sure to some extent it was, again, for your uncle to do that, to say, you know what, I'm dismounting, I'm taking charge of the situation, I'm figuring out what's going on, I'm, I'm making sure that we're not losing lives, you know, senselessly, and being able to communicate on the battlefield, because we, you know, that's the biggest change, I think, in anything, the technology is come on the battlefield and how different it was then and now, and this is a great, this is a great citation. I don't know if a bronze star is, you know, quite, I don't know. I think that could have been elevated a little bit listening to that. Cause that, that, that's just, that's very impressive. Well, if we've learned anything from the books we read, usually they're um, nominated for a higher rank, but then they usually get knocked down because, well, we right. don't want to hand out too many of the silver stars or we don't want to hand out too many medal of honors. So we'll just give him a bronze star. But yeah, I'm sure he was probably nominated for a higher award and somebody somewhere said, well, we're going to keep your numbers low. So, mm. but even yeah. still a bronze star, that's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, no, no you're right. You know, and I and- just, I just had a thought and hopefully you guys can hear me. I think maybe that's something tankers and perhaps maybe Navy men have in common is when you spend so much time either in a tank or on a vessel, it becomes more than just a vehicle or a mode of transportation. It's your home. And kind of like we learned in, from watching Fury, you know, it's, I'm not going to leave my home. I'm, I'm here for, you know, I'm going to hold down and protect my home. And so I think that's probably where a lot of that death before dismount comes from, just like you see that in the Navy. Uh, yeah. I think anywhere where there was a vehicle involved, I mean, you can think about, pilots and and their Mm -hmm. attachment to their aircraft and air crew and um yeah i think there's a little bit of that anywhere from if you were you know in a jeep to a sherman to a b-17 to a sub maybe not the poor runner stuck on the bicycle i'm sure he's had to get rid of that thing (laughs) (laughs) right into the ruts in europe probably weren't very fun getting shot at (laughs) thin skinny ass tires I've ridden one of those. I, we have a reenactor down here. He has like four or five of them. He always brings them up to the events. And those things are, there's something else. I'll tell you what, thin, thin uh, wall tires and uh, boots. And just, yeah, I could not imagine trying to ride that with purpose in any way, shape, and or form, even back then. Even with it being. Yeah, I can't imagine up. the leather soles on those boots and those little dinky pedals. Oh, yeah. even worse, the Germans with their hobnails trying to ride that. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, it is quieter than walking, though. Oh, that's a fact real quick uh jeff before we continue on with the battle of the bulge stuff uh i just because i know you might forget um you you're planning on and we want to we always want to give and shine light on people who are trying to preserve history in their own way and you shared a link with us to something i'd never even occurred to me in all my wild dreams of possibly opening a museum <laughs> explain to everybody this this great thing this guy did in your neck of the woods and uh, where you're going to go when weather turns yeah oh man so <laughs> a couple of years ago uh when i was still in pacific war museum had somebody come up to me with and it was i think not quite open yet but more than a concept like it was happening it was going on and he said hey look i, I work for a guy who who 
uh, created a World War II themed miniature golf course. Putt putt. Do what now? And <laughs> that immediately, not just when he said World War II, but just me and my family, we we do putt putt. All right, like this is what we do. We when we go on vacation, we have done miniature golf courses from Florida to Tucson, Arizona. Literally. I mean, if there's a nice putt-putt course, we're taking the kids there. I wish you would have told me because we have one complete with baby alligators across the river. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. I, I think there was one, the, the other one we went to uh, outside of uh, Fort Myers or, or Matt Lachey or yeah, wherever Fort Myers, Florida, yeah. we went. Yeah. I think they had alligators. But, yeah, so um, it's what we do. And, and to, like, when I heard this, that this guy, and it's a private deal. It's private land. He bought however many acres and had a Quonset hut brought in. That's the museum. You're in, you're inside, you know, uh, Who's aspect your of the museum. Guy? <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, brought in some World War II vets. And I, I think if I remember correctly, I want to say it was his grandfather. Yeah. He said his maybe grandfather, his grandfather video. brother, something like that. He, he had a family tie yep. to the second world war in some way. And it meant a lot to him. And, and he built this amazing world war II theme miniature golf course and, and you have a pearl harbor hole you have a mighty eighth hole and some of it just has to do with the way the the turf is you know colored yes. um to have these silhouettes i think there's like a silhouette of the arizona and pearl you know that you're walking on i saw that now there's a mock-up like p51 that's built outside there on one of the holes yeah it's a playground and, if, and then uh one yeah. of the holes looks like maybe Tarawa where the it actually has blue artificial grass and then green and then at yeah. the beginning of each hole it actually has a history like it, the the first one it's d-day so it's still the longest day it's the longest it's the longest par five hole in mini golf course in the united states so you have the longest hole and there's a little plaque talking about d-day and it goes around the timeline and then at the end at the 19th hole instead of a bar he actually has a museum with his i think i think part of it was his wife said hey you gotta get the stuff out of the house and he said well <laughs> oh hey, yeah mini golf <laughs> mini golf museum there you go. And so he actually has him. I watched that video. It, it looks pretty cool. And he has complete uniforms from people of the area who fought. And uh, he has a wax uniform in there and a Jeep and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's brilliant. And dang it, wish I wish I'd have thought of that. That made a great little cush retirement for me out here. <laughs> well, we talk about, well, franchise, franchise, franchise. Uh, you know, we talk about all the time is how do you keep young kids who need tangible things and interactive things to care about World War II? I mean, we try it with living history events and it works to some effect, but here's, you play mini golf and then by the way, let's go inside and look at the stuff that this represents. And so it's right. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. So it's in Buda and I, I'm trying to think of the actual correct name for it, but I think it's just Memorial mini golf. Yeah, I think Memorial so. Memorial miniature golf and museum, something like that. Um, Cause yeah, that's what it's about too. I mean, it's, it's about memorializing, you know, what these guys did. And I think it's, I think he had a P 51 pilot there for the opening. I want to say something like that. He, well, he had some more two that's come by. Um, but yeah, it's down, it's down in Buda, which is just outside of Austin. Um, you know, so pretty, pretty close to where we're about an hour from where I live. So, uh, but yeah, like Don mentioned, we're, we're like in the seventies and then all of a sudden it's going to be winter for the weekend. Uh, so yeah, we're, it's getting cold here too. Yeah. yeah we, we were going to go this Saturday, but we're going to wait till it's not 40 degrees and raining. We'll wait till it'll be 75 again, you know? 
Yeah, it's called the Memorial Miniature Golf and Museum. Um, it's <laughs> it's it's primarily a weekend operation. Clearly, this guy has to have another you know gig to pay his bills. So Monday to, Monday through Thursday, they are in fact closed. But if you're in that area of Texas, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they're open four to nine on Friday, ten a.m. to nine on Saturday, and ten a.m. to eight p.m. on Sunday. Yeah. And so uh, you know, we always want to shine light on people trying to find new ways to preserve history, and and let's be honest, and a new way to keep museums open. I'm sure the miniature golf emission fees will help keep the lights on in the museum because sadly during the pandemic, so many of them closed down. Yeah, you got that right. It, it's It's been tough, you know, here at this museum. Uh, of course, we're only open three days a week as well, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's tough sometimes. Um, you know, luckily there's so much to do that I, I'm, it's not like I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs, um, but it, it, it's certainly so much better when you have a good number of people coming through as opposed to you're there for three hours and like, hey, all right, somebody to talk to, <laughs> you know. Um, it is what it is. It, you know, it's all volunteer run and uh, a lot of locals that are, that are help keeping it going and donating to it. In fact, Boom. Again, our buddy Gabe mm-hmm. uh, donating some really cool artifacts. I'll be uh, I'll, I'll send some pictures, too, that's going to be entered into our collection, stuff that we don't have at the Air Museum that he's very generous to uh, to to let us display. Uh, so we're, we're really excited about that. Um, so, yeah, it's it, you know, there's still people who who donate to museums. There's still people that come to museums. But again, if you're not kind of like you said, if you're not reaching that next generation, you know, I mean, you guys really care about what I do, but what I'm really trying to do is target Henry's son. You know, I know Henry loves this stuff, but I'm really, you know, that's kind of been our driving force with this museum and this cadet program that we started two years ago. Now we're, we're not interested in how much, you know, your 40 year old or your 65 year old enjoys where we, we, that's easy. It's the 13 year old, um, you know, how do we get that person, that youngster involved and appreciative of what was done for them and what it took. Um, and it sometimes guys, sometimes it really doesn't take much, you know, it, sometimes you just show one little thing. Um, and they're like, Oh, I had no idea. I want to know more. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's tough sometimes, you know, we just had our Pearl Harbor anniversary at, at school and we were kind of asking kiddos, all right, guys, you know, what do you think? What was a big thing that happened 81 years ago today? And boy, some of the answers, <laughs> you know, it, it really puts things into perspective. I mean, I still have high school students ask me what it was like in Nam, and I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> See, what, what do you do? Tell them, go watch Platoon, man. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what do y'all know about this? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like the worm has turned for you. But, uh, yeah, yeah. it is what it is. <laughs> I want to play a little clip, and this will help segue us back into the topic of this podcast, which is World War II, and we'll get back in the Battle of the Balls. But here's a little segue. I, I listened to the Adam Carolla podcast. And they had the guy who writes all the books with Bill O'Reilly, The Killing Pat and this and that. And uh, Adam Kroll is one of his co-hosts slash uh, news person. Her name is Gina Grad, and she's of Jewish descent. And she had a question for the uh, the co-author of Killing Pat and a lot of the other uh, Bill O'Reilly books. And he kind of glossed over her 
you know, he didn't really give her what I thought was the appropriate answer to this question. I thought, who better to answer this question than the World War II podcast? So here's a quick clip of her question, and I want you guys, maybe we can answer it for you. I have a question, being someone who's very interested in World War II, but not nearly as knowledgeable as, as either of you in this room. Um, it, from what, we, what we're told, it feels like people say the Americans sure took their sweet time getting over there. Why is that? And what, Can you speak to that a little bit? We knew, oh, sure. we, we knew what was going on with Auschwitz and Birkenbelden. We knew all of that, right? No, not at the beginning. Not at the beginning, no. but, but the, we, the, we had known the it. The New York Times was tamping down that story. See, this is this, they don't teach this in Hebrew school. Yeah, no. Uh, but I am wondering, like, Chris what? can find that. But the New York Times, lest you think whatever they're doing yeah. with COVID or the Hunter yeah. Biden laptop is new, <laughs> they've been doing this shit for a long time. Very interesting. And so, I thought it probably would behoove us to explain to people the reason that took us quote unquote so long is because, as you guys know, because of where our military was before we got involved in World War II. Um, we weren't ready to fight. That's why the Marine Corps was sent down the Pacific first, because they were more, quote-unquote, battle-ready than the Army was at that point. And so maybe if you guys want to give your your thoughts on what took us so long, quote-unquote, to get involved in the European theater of the war. Oh. <laughs> I'll, hey, I'll, Jeff, while you're formulating what I'm sure will be a better answer than what I'm going to give... <laughs> I'll just jump out and say, you know, we, we dove in pretty quick with the 8th Air Force getting B-17s airborne over Europe. And, and what, Jeff, was it late 42? Uh, August of 42 was the first yeah, day. I mean, so right away you've got a lot of young men putting it on the line and B-17s and B-47s and whatever else was, you know, the P-51s weren't extant at that point, obviously, but. You know, we, we were jumping into it as quick as we could as far as a, a massive land force. I mean, like what we what has become iconically known as D-Day. I mean, shit, it took a while to stand that up and get them trained and get them in, get them in there and get them equipped and get them trained and get them parsed out to, to units. I mean, you don't just snap your fingers and make that happen. I mean, what was our army ranked at yeah. the time of Pearl Harbor? I don't it's think something we, absurd. Yeah, we weren't even uh, on the board. 17th. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, for anybody who says, well, we knew about what was happening at Birkenau and, and Auschwitz and all those things, and to what the guy said, we really didn't at first, okay? Yeah. But I go back to what I said. Say that to a to the descendant of a B seventeen crewman what? who was flying missions over over France or Germany in nineteen forty two. Well, and and I think a lot of that has to do with pop cultures. And, and somewhat rightfully so, but we've discussed it on here. For the non-World War II aficionado, everybody thinks D-Day was our in- introduction to the war. You know, no, we rarely give any real, at least in pop culture view and wide broadcast, we, we never talk about the North Africa campaign. We rarely talk about Italy. wasn't until HBO of the Pacific that, you know, your father and his his comrades got there just due of what we did down the Pacific Yes, it took us a while to get over to Europe, but we were already fighting since August 7, 1942. And, you know, and prior to that with the Doolittle raids and all that stuff. And once again, we, we were in the war. We just weren't in that area yet because we had strategic areas that we had to achieve and to before we got to that point. And not to mention a whole hell of a lot of training. Yeah. I mean, so much training to go. 
get involved. And not only that, but you had the, the leaders like Churchill, Stalin, you know, everybody had to sit down and decide who was going to do what. Go ahead, Jeff. You're going to say something. Yeah, no, I, it's so easy for somebody to criticize something like that. I mean, I think if we really dug deep, it, it would amaze people how quickly, mm-hmm. to me, we not only mobilized, but to to create, like you said, what we did at D-Day, and then to turn around and do something even larger less than a year later at Okinawa should blow people's socks off. Um, But I think the biggest thing that we really, okay, the, the concentration camps aside, because naturally there was just so much propaganda flying in the second world war. There were so many things from our allies. Naturally. I mean, you got to think that England is probably making everything up that they possibly can to get us in the war to begin with. Mm -hmm. But what you have to understand is the ridiculous fickleness the materialistic expectations of entitlement that is the American civilian public. And like we just mentioned beginning in this podcast, 20 years ago, wasn't all that long ago. Man, it feels like it was not that long ago. Well, 20 years ago, our boys were dying in the first world war. And there was a lot of people that, you know, that left a bad taste in their mouth, not just the boys that lost, but the boys that came home and quote unquote won. um, and I don't know who actually wins a war politically, I guess we do, but the boys that fought and died are no different than the boys that fought and died. Right. Yeah. So our American boys came home and now you're going to expect their 17 year old son to go do what they just experienced. It better take a whole heck of a lot of convincing. Oh, and, and, and these are the children of the generation who were told you fought the war to end all wars. Well, what the hell happened to that? Right. Absolutely. I mean, airplanes and machine guns and that kind of stuff melding with, you know, 19th century (laughs) doctrine was just ridiculous. I mean, just imagine Gatling guns at Lexington and Concord. That's World War One. And and and, and then airplanes and the gas (laughs) and the amount of gas those guys dealt with. Right. Right. So for 20 short years later to expect us to do the same thing on a larger scale. With what you said, we, we were not as prepared a military. Now, I don't know if it's fair to say that the Marines were more prepared to fight than the Army at the beginning of the war. I don't see it that way. I think that they were designed for that type of environment based on their uh, experiences in the Banana Wars in the 20s. Sure. This yeah. is more their style. Yep. Um, obviously, Civil we warfare. know, and I, and I say this not to mess with, with Marines, even though I usually do, but I, <laughs> I think it's <laughs> – I do, but I'm not this time. <laughs> That war in the Pacific could not have been won without the Army and the Army Air Corps there. Sure. Absolutely. We, 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 all, we all know this, but that's still a second aside to, like Don said, we've got, it was a Europe first. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, FDR said that even though, yes, technically we landed on Tulagi and Guadalcanal on the 7th of August, and the Army didn't step foot until November in North <laughs> Africa three months later. But to Henry's point, yeah, B-17s, 8th Air Force, which was like, almost not even going to happen. The mm-hmm. mighty eighth was not the mighty eighth in August of 1942. The mighty eighth was a mighty experiment. And it's same thing that, that attrition rate, like, do we want to send up 10, eight, eight, nine, 10 guys in this airplane that almost didn't really ever happen. <laughs> you know, the model 299 almost didn't sure. happen. 
So and not only that, uh, but let's not forget the Lend Lease program. As soon as we re-geared all of our car manufacturing plants, stopped making refrigerators. I mean, all the stuff that we stopped making to make war goods, as we were stockpiling our stuff, we were sending stuff over to the Russians, over to the over to the Brits, over to our allies. So yeah, we hadn't sent quote unquote boots on the ground, but we we're definitely sending gear over there while we were trying to come up with enough stuff to outfit our guys. And by the way. 1939, the world was a hell of a lot smaller, bigger. The world was a hell of a lot bigger than it is today. I mean, to get that many guys over there on ships, you know, we weren't flying guys in mass over there. And most of they, you know. Yeah, troop ships. Troop ships, or as uh, a perfect example, today in World War II, the United States Navy took control over France's luxury ocean liner, the uh, Normandy. While it was docked at New York City, the ship was converted into troop transport ship and renamed the USS Lafayette. Uh, the ship had been placed in quote-unquote protective custody when France surrendered to Germany in 1940. So we were literally taking cruise ships, um, old tugboats, any uh, shrimping vessels, and putting, you know, you guys you guys read Bloody Hill. They're talking about their, the, what they called yippies. They're all basically old uh, shrimp boats that they, let's put some uh, steel on the hull and you know, slap some guns on them, and now we got us a Navy. It's like they were taking anything they could to get guys and gear and logistics and everything over there. That's a yep. huge Ooh. undertaking. So I think if we really look at it in context, mm-hmm. it's unbelievable how quickly we mobilized. And by it the really way, is. By the way, yeah, we, you're right. I agree. By the way, we had to build an oil uh, pipeline <laughs> under the channel to get oil over there and yeah, fuel Pluto. over there. Yeah, pipeline under the ocean, Pluto, <laughs> three-inch pipes. Yeah, it's, so. it's incredible. It's incredible what we did. I, I still, looking back, I cannot believe we were involved in this war for forty-five months. Forty-five months. Yeah, <laughs> and it's still we feel the effects. Mm-hmm. It's and, unbelievable. And and you know to your point, Jeff. I mean, who who was the happiest guy in the room when Pearl Harbor got attacked? Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill. <laughs> he was he was lighting a cigar and waddling down the hall. Like, We've got it now. We're, more we're good. Right? The United States is coming in. Right. But by what, 1943? I think it was before Tarawa. It was before some of the bigger um, uh, bombing campaigns. By, by the middle of 1943, the American public's like, hmm, okay, not seeing many results, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this was not... It's why we had to have so many war bond drives because yep. of the American public going, yay, we're all for it. And then, well, we're getting tired of this. What's next? What's the new thing? We're, you know, the war got old. Who cares? What else are we going to do? That, you know, it, it, we were like that then. It was no different than September 11th. When I got to go over, everybody's got the yellow ribbon magnet on their car. And woo-hoo, yep. we're going to, you know, Toby Keith is making all these hits <laughs> about, you know, kicking somebody's butt and, yep. and whatever over in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when I got back in 2005, it was like, wait, are we, y'all are still over there? I mm-hmm. thought that was, I thought we're done. Not to mention, oh, I went 2019. Cool. You know, I'm sure that that's how that China Marine father of yours felt probably in 1940. <laughs> going, hey, we're home. Yeah. Well, and he talked about how when he got home, I mean, he just appreciated clean socks and, and hot coffee and clean water. Mm-hmm. Right. And people are in a hurry to get places. It was, he was like, he, he even talked about, I don't know if this is in the unpublished portion. I, I think it is. I don't want to get too off into this. Just, I just want to say on Okinawa, okay, they had buddies who had been over there, you know, Cape Ostropelo, Okinawa. They went home. 
and then would write them back saying, I, I miss you guys. You're going to think I'm crazy, but I want to come back. I yeah. can't connect with anybody back home. I can't Absolutely. remember at this moment if that was in the unpublished stuff or actually in with the old breed, but he talked a lot about it at some point. So, yeah, it's kind of like in, you know, Bloody Ridge. He's talking about after they closed down the Raiders, most of the guys got sent over, stayed over there, and were him and a handful of his guys got sent back to the United States to do MP duty. And they're like, uh, I didn't train for this boredom. I want to go back on the front line. They're like, what are you talking about? You got the safe, cushy job. You're, you're, you know, you're schlepping some brig rats across the country in a train, but you want to go back over there and, and get back in the, in the hole. I had a thought too. People don't realize either is, the best best analogy I just came up with, we had guy with truck problems. Jeff, you have a truck. I have a truck. Henry, I'm sure at some point in life you had a truck. Imagine you're the only guy with a truck and you have 15 neighbors wanting you to be somewhere to move their couch. We were the same oh, yeah. way. You know, we we had uh, we got the Brits wanting us over here. We had the Russians wanting us over here. We got the Australians saying, hey, Japanese are coming our way. We need you down here. So we were Chinese. The guy, Chinese. We were, we were the guy with the truck problem. We had all these people wanting us to move their furniture on the same weekend, and we had to figure out how to get it done with one one tundra. And, and that's all things that you have to take into account. Absolutely. Like I said, I mean, I think if people really did their research, really dug deep and, and read the right books, it, it, it should be the opposite reaction. It should be, wow, I can't believe how quickly y'all did that, really. Um, and it's funny talking about this, too, because I, 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 uh, I told Don earlier, I, I've got a few movies that I've watched here recently, and one of them talks exactly about what Henry was saying. Um, it's called Till, I want to say if it was Till the End of Time. I think that was it. Um, yeah, till the end of time, 1946, Guy Madison, Dorothy McGuire, and my man, Robert Mitchum. And it's about three Marines who, uh, no action, but these three Marines that come home after the war and just try to make it in society. And, and it's a really, it's kind of a movie ahead of its time, if you ask me. I mean, it's literally 1946. This is not, mm -hmm. this is not a history. This is current events of these guys coming home. And um, one of the three had lost use of his legs. Robert Mitchum is this, you know, he's a cow puncher. He's going to own 2,000 acres, you know. And Guy Madison, he's kind of the main star, you know. And, and he's kind of the jock-looking guy, you know, that, that just that quintessential – blonde kid that you know all american um that is kind of having a hard time finding a job um dorothy mcguire's kind of the love interest for both robert mitchum and guy madison they both and she's a war widow so she's got problems and these two guys are i mean of course okay so she's a good looking girl and it's been a while so they're they're they immediately fall in love with her um and then you kind of see the decline of their plans not happening and oh i'm not going to do this and oh that's that fell through so you kind of see this really uh, emotionally powerful movie from 1946 um really tell that story and, and they actually connect with their old uh first sergeant to kind of say hey top like we need <laughs> we need some help and uh, there's actually a scene in there where there was some organization some veteran, oh, we'll help you get on your feet thing, but they did not um, accept Catholics, Jews, or Negroes. They would not help out those three demographics. So you can really see the the time, yeah. <laughs> you know, really come through with that. But um, yeah, 
guys, I mean, I saw that firsthand. I have some good buddies that took, it took them a decade to, to get back on their feet after something like Iraq or Afghanistan. And I, I knew a guy that I was worried about him every single day. I, I just felt like there's going to be a day I'm going to get that call. And it took for him to, I mean, I helped him get a job. He, I mean, he, at the time he couldn't have kept a job at a car wash. And he went out to West Texas, climbed the highest peak in Texas, linked up with an organization that that's what they do. They take guys with PTSD, they take combat vets, and they put them on the highest mountains in the collegiate mountain range in Colorado, make them look down on the rest of, you know, the state and go, you're, you're, you're up here now. You did it. And don't let what happened over there define who you are. Let it be part of, part of who you are, but don't let it define you. And I think that was a, a thing that probably didn't get um, didn't get to our greatest generation guys, certainly didn't get to our Korea, Vietnam era guys. And luckily now we're starting to see there's a psychology to it that it can be beaten. And, um, you know, while the suicide rate is always going to be there, um, I think the more options that we have in a modern society with all of these different ways to find something else, all these ways to, you can connect with so many more people to fit in. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, hopefully we don't see that 1946 coming home, wishing you were just back in combat because that was the only place you fit in. You know, hopefully we, we finally do get away from that because combat's always going to be there and it's always going to suck. Yeah. But hopefully we can get our guys back and, 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 you know, learn how to, to live in the world again. Was that the name of the movie coming home? No, till we meet again. Till we meet again. Okay, no, 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 not till we meet again. Till the end of time. Till the end of time. Till the end of time. Yeah. Back to the. Um, it seems to me like, and and it's it's fantastic. It's it's a little weird. It seemed like it took so long for people to figure this out, but it seems like a lot of that, um, those kind of support groups is based around two things: idle hands is the devil's playground, and people who can share the same thoughts and history. And so you see this all the time, scuba diving for vets, hunting trips, hiking, fishing. It's like, let's get guys who share the same stuff. Let's get them out outdoors again. Cause that's where they're used to being. Let's find something fun that occupy their time and to get them away from the world and get them into the situation that, you know, especially when it comes to like fishing or hiking or hunting, not so much scuba diving cause you got a, a respirator in your mouth, but uh, something that allows them to do something while talking, allowing them to open up. And it seems like a lot of that truly, really helps, especially being outdoors. I, so many times I'm out there on my kayak fishing and just, you have time to process. And so it's, it seems like a lot of those groups that have great success with helping with PTSD and depression is based on those two things. Find something you enjoy doing. Let's get around people and the rest will fall into place. Absolutely. Yeah. And I saw, saw a couple other pretty good movies I wanted to mention sure. too. Um, 1963, PT 109. Yep. Cliff Robertson. Cliff Robertson, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cliff Robertson. I love plays Cliff JFK. Robertson. <clears throat> he did a great, and you know, my dad always talked about that. He goes, oh man, that's such a good movie. I always heard him talk about that one. I always heard him talk about that one and the one with Frank Sinatra, I think, where they're stranded on an island or something and, and I, I never saw that i forget but he always talked about that and pt 109 and man let me tell you pt 109 is a great war film 
it's not, you know, when I say 1963, you probably think, oh, like Battle of the Bulge, where they're using whatever tanks for German tanks. Wow, whatever, you know. I, 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 number one, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, I mean, I thought it was really, really well done and I didn't do the research, but guys, I'm curious when in 1963 was this movie released before, after November 22nd, I'm curious. That's a good question. I'm real curious about that, but yeah, if you see that come on your TV, wow, watch it. It's just so well done. Cliff Robertson does a great job playing JFK. He doesn't overdo the JFK accent. He's not trying to be JFK. It, it, obviously, he is, but not not the way we think of him. You know, in, in a contemporary reenactor or some biopic, it, it's he he portrays him well enough to where he doesn't have to sound like him. Um, you 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 get his you get his mannerisms a little bit, but you really get his leadership, and and I, I think he did a great job selling who JFK was as a sailor in World War II. You know what I mean? Pre-politics. Yeah, without all the hyperbole that came later. Right, right. I, I thought it just did a great job, and, and there wasn't a whole lot of that added drama that didn't need to be in there, or I'm sure there was inaccuracies. I don't care. Um, you know there wasn't any CGI. It's 1963, so it's a great flick. <laughs> Where did they film it, Jeff? Do you know? I wish I, wish I could tell you. I mean, it. if it wasn't filmed in the Solomons or – New Zealand, Australia, mm-hmm. sure looked like it. Well, the release date was June 19th, 1963. And obviously back then everything shot on film and edited on film. That means this thing was probably in production in 61, 62, maybe, maybe even early yeah. 1960. Um, I'm trying to find your answer to see if uh, production, let's see, blah, blah, blah. Keep talking while I try to find out where this thing was filmed. Well, so the the whole 109 story, wasn't that up in the central Solomons, you know, Bella Lavella, Rendova, around there? Columbangara. Yeah, I think, well... It was uh, north of Guadalcanal, right? Well, it, he was based on Tulagi. Okay, all right. It was the PT boat uh, base at Tulagi, and then, yeah, he ended up somewhere. I can't think of... Yeah, was it... I don't know if it was Vela Lavelle that they were supporting. I can't remember. That's a good question, but obviously it's the you know, Plum Pudding Island is where they ended up swimming to. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I guess... Well, you not, would say that would be the central song. Not to disappoint you, but it is Hollywood, and it's the 1960s. The exteriors were filmed at Little Palm Island, formerly known as Munson Island, now a resort in the Florida Keys. <laughs> <laughs> Power and fresh water were run to the island for the filming, uh, allowing for the resort to be built years later. So once again, here's another, another story where formerly a useless piece of land was brought you know, to uh, modern days do for Hollywood filming, and after they left because they ran power and plumbing, they built the um, built the uh, the hotels and all that. Let's see here. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, let's see here. Power and fresh water were run to the island for the filming, allowing for the resort to be built years later. The construction of the sets and the presence of uh, of the boats and other paraphernalia during the filming gave rise to the rumors of another U.S. invasion of Cuba. So, so they're down there filming this movie, and people are seeing all these military vehicles and tents down there in Florida Keys. We're going to invade Cuba. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. At the time of the filming being planned, it was found that the uh, few surviving 80-foot Elko PT boats were not in operational conditions. 
though uh, a future search was conducted and it was determined that none could be located for use in the film as almost all had been destroyed in the theaters at the end of the world of uh, in the theater at the end of World War II, uh, former World War II era U.S. United States Army Air Force 85-foot crash rescue boats were converted to resemble the Elko PT boats. So um, interesting. Yeah, so there just there was none left. The United yeah, and I want to say that I saw somewhere where there was only actually five PT boats that did come home from the war. None were from the Pacific Theater. All were from the European Theater. Um, I know, of course, the one in Fredericksburg, the one at World War II Museum in New yeah, Orleans. They've got one there. Mm-hmm. The one, um, I think there's one in Oregon or Washington. Not sure. I thought there was one up in the North Pacific Northwest somewhere. Um, now I don't know about the others, but yeah, because they were all scuttled. They were literally instruments of war. Right. So we have zero use for them. Um, and every 80 foot Elko PT boat you bring home is how many Joes that are not coming home. <laughs> like what's the point? They're all made out of plywood. Just, you know, scuttle them. Let's go, let's go home. I mean, it, it breaks your heart thinking of that. I, I, you know, all the color footage that you see, I don't know if you guys have seen the color footage at the end of the war, just pushing Hellcats. Oh, I, was, I was thinking of Hellcats going off Coming the end up. of the light carriers. Oh, I mean, they're yeah. just yeah. Rid of them. all the Jeeps. You guys will enjoy this. The American AT-6 Texan training plane stood in for the Japanese Zeros on the film. Oh, that is extremely obvious. But luckily, our American trainers, our advanced trainers, look very close to, to, to the Mitsubishi Zero. Yeah. I mean, they really, that's what all the Pearl Harbor planes are. Christ. Yeah, of course. It's how it is. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, you know, some of the wartime films, if you go back and watch like Wake Island yeah. or Guadalcanal Diary, they're not even T6s or SNJs. Some of them are like wildcats. <laughs> they yeah. put a meatball on. So. Well, you know, the famous footage of Pearl Harbor where they have the dauntless dive bombers of the meatballs where they, they go into, you know, that, Right. That's iconic. I mean, John yeah. Ford. John yeah. Ford there. <laughs> it says the United States Navy provided support, uh, including the tank landing ships, LSTs as we know them, the 758 USS Duval County, the destroyer of the USS Sulphury, and smaller vessels such as landing crafts and motor whale boats from nearby Navy Station Key West. After seeing the film, Kennedy called PT-109 a, quote, good product, but was worried about the two-hour and 20-minute time length. Uh, quote, it question, it's just a question of whether there'll be too much of it. So he was concerned that it was a little too long for the American people. But other than that, he thought it was a good product. That's neat to know. I mean, like I said, I was wondering if he actually got to see it. I mean, that's I'm glad. I'm glad he got to see it. Yeah, that's something we, we've talked about in the past. And uh, we need to get someone from, whether Kennedy Museum, an author, we need to do an episode on PT-109 because... I don't know enough about it. I don't know if you guys. Yeah, I know very little about it. Well, uh, yeah, I, we can we can definitely save the full story for another day. But I was very fortunate to get a backstage tour of the sixth floor museum in Dallas. Um, got to that go down in the vault. Oh man, let me tell you. Um, I mean, I got to see all of the contents that were um, confiscated from Jack Ruby's vehicle. Wow. Well. Um, you know, this is stuff not on, on public display, but to me, I think the really cool thing uh, was a scrapbook mm-hmm. that was kept by Kennedy's buddy, who was also another PT boat 
captain that didn't have a ship so he ends up going with kennedy that mm -hmm. fateful night yep and was not on the muster of course he's not listed so how many guys actually were missing was plus one but they didn't realize wow. it well he also ends up surviving the war and i think they were buddies at a, annapolis i guess maybe played football mm -hmm. together whatever it was they were pretty tight and they just linked up in Tulagi and said hey i'll have one with you I'm, i don't have a craft right now so okay cool hop on yeah and then everything happened but that guy when he got back from the war naturally stayed in touch with with kennedy and kept a scrapbook of all these newspaper clippings as you know the senator becomes the president and what was really cool in there were the the tickets from the inaugural dinner oh, that wow. that guy got to go to when kennedy was inaugurated a little doily napkin from the event and just little bits just like again a scrapbook i mean photos of those two guys on Tulagi during the war you know before all that happened just you know, not not produced anywhere else, just actual photographs that the guy took with a camera of, of JFK that, you know, I've never seen before. This is down in a box in the vault of the sixth floor museum in Dallas. Like, really cool stuff to be able to flip man. through it. Yeah, it was cool. Not not to continue down that rabbit hole, no, but please, do they have the Man Liquor Carcana, the 6.5 millimeter rifle? That's uh, supposedly Oswald had. You know, I don't remember seeing the Carcano, no. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a pretty, it's a moving museum. Now, the one corner, supposedly the, the window um, is kind of blocked off. There, there's, mm. there's plexiglass there and they, they have like stacks of boxes of books, you know, from the, the, when it was a book depository. So they tried to leave that one corner pristine, I guess, from 63. Like the sniper's but, nest. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can look down and go. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, you, you can't be at that window. You're at the one next to it, looking down at the little white X on the road, like, mm-hmm. Um, but oh, whatever, sure. it is, yeah, it is what it is. Um, that, that is an interesting day in history. And it is, again, another rabbit hole, but, uh, <laughs> but, but very, very World War II relevant, you know, of course, with Kennedy. And like, so, yeah, great movie. Go watch it. Here's a non-World War II relevant uh, documentary that's history, and it's the the uh, only unsolved American hijacking uh, mystery of the American time, which is a documentary on Netflix right now called uh, D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? I'm like five episodes into that. And that's uh, pretty interesting. They There's people in there who have theories of who D.B. Cooper was, and they hound the shit out of one guy to the fact where he was Susan. But it's on Netflix. You not, Are you familiar with D.B. Cooper, Jeff? Yeah. I'll give you the uh, I'll give you the uh, cliff notes. Back in the '60s, we had no security, and basically hijacking airplanes basically became a thing to do. Uh, if you need to get the hell out of a country and want to go somewhere else, you just paid fifty bucks, got an airplane, you hijacked it, and they'll take you to Cuba wherever you wanted to go. Uh, DB Cooper was a mystery man. That he he put Dan Cooper on his his um, ticket he bought, and then journalists thought the police called him DB Cooper, which is a cooler name than Dan Cooper. Long story short, guy gets on a Pan Am flight. It's only a half-hour flight. He's in the back, all done up, damper, dapper, shirt, tie, sunglasses. Tells the stewardess to sit down next to him, opens up his briefcase. He's got a bomb in there. Gives her a note. They land at the uh, airport. I forget which airport it was. Uh, they land at the airport. He um, 
basically before landing, they send a letter back to the police. And at the time, I guess we negotiated with terrorists. He wanted $200,000 in 1971 money and four parachutes. Why say four? Well, because they give you one. They can break that son of a bitch and you're dead. So for some whatever reason, they land. There's this $200,000 and four parachutes, which they promptly bring on the airplane. He lets everybody off but the crew. And they let the plane take off again. Oh, it's Washington State. Says so they're wa- flying from Washington State uh, down south. He uh, tells the pilot to fly at, uh, I think, 200 and, at 250 miles per hour, which is incredibly slow for that Pan Am flight. Keep the flaps down and fly a certain altitude. And at a certain time, he told the stewardess to go up front. He lowered the aft stairs, just walked off and parachuted away with $200,000, and they never caught him. And it's been a huge mystery. There's all these theories of who this guy is. Clearly, he's ex-military to know this and that. And it's a, if you're not familiar with it, it's a mini-series on Netflix right now called D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? And it's it's a pretty pretty fun, um, cool little uh, documentary to watch. But yeah, it's the only air heist in history that never was never resolved. And uh, yeah, wow. he, maybe uh, because his chute didn't open. Well, well, that, that's why he asked for four. So that, you know, that way they thought maybe he was going to force other people to jump. They didn't want to, you know, he he would think that maybe they didn't want to risk. And that's the question: Did he land? Did he survive? Uh, did he get away with it? They've never found a parachute. Hmm. Some people claim they found some of his money. Um, but yeah, that's the mystery. They, the police never found them, and and wow. that was fifty, uh, 1971, wow. So all these years ago. That's and, great. Well, um, that actually segues into the last thing I wanted to talk about, which also is not necessarily World War II related directly. Yeah, we do history, but it's a film that I know Henry said he saw. I just got to see. I'm trying to go, but the only lady don't want to go with me. So I'm you slacker, Don. You need to get out there. I oh just finished gosh. the book, too, Jeff. Oh, man. So, Henry, yeah, you you, you go first. I'll go this weekend. Um, That'll be my oh, mission. Oh, man. I'll go this weekend. Yeah. What, what'd, you, what'd you think You want about? me to take it away? You um, take, take it away. Yeah, I mean, so I saw the movie first and then read the book after the movie. What, 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 what movie are we talking about? We were talking about Devotion. By, by our good buddy, Adam Makos, the, the movie based on the book by our buddy, Adam Makos, about the first black naval aviator, Jesse O. Brown, and, and the other hero, Tom Hudger. But, yeah, I mean, so it, it was kind of interesting to – my wife and my son had read the book, and one of my son's friends who went with us had just finished the book. I had not read it till after. Of course, we saw the movie literally days after my mom's passing, so, you know, a lot going on, but – but yeah, after I, I read, started reading the book last week and just finished it up Sunday um, or, or Saturday, rather. But yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Jeff, I know you're a big Corsair guy like I am. I mean, beautiful shots of, of those Dash 5s um, and some F8F Bearcats, you know, an airplane that I really know very little next to nothing about because it just, if it didn't see service in World War II, I just tend to not be interested in it. But Great shots of the Corsair. Um, but, yeah, I thought I really enjoyed the book, and, and I enjoyed the movie as well. I thought that, um, you know, there were certain aspects of the story, without putting too fine a point on it, there, there were certain aspects of the story that they could have really just pounded into your head, and you guys probably know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And they, I don't think that they did that. You know, they, they put just enough of it out there to kind of contextualize it. Uh, but it just was a, I thought, a really well done film. 
What would you think, Jeff? The so yeah, I I went with my wife. We had a nice little date night. So the fact that that even happened while the film was still in theaters was a miracle in itself, right? Just based on our schedule. So really lucky that I got to see it with her. And I knew going in, you know. So this is a, this is a gal that uh, she didn't like Midway. <clears throat> what? I know. If you say she liked Pearl Harbor, but not Midway, I'm going to be like, but she buys you World War II stuff, man. Right. So she's amazing. (laughs) But so I I get it. So what she expected out of Midway with what she knew about it. And of course, what I was expecting were two different things. She's not, she doesn't want an airplane movie where it's this, you're looking at a guy in the cockpit. Oh, man. You know, she doesn't want that the whole time. I get it. Me, I want to feel the lack of gravity in the SBD as you're coming in on the here you, right? Like, I wanted that. Um, Okay, but devotion was so different for her. I think she cried five times. Um, Christine is the word that came to my mind. I honestly, I think it's one of the best war movies I think I've ever seen, guys. Because... And Henry touched on it. Nothing is overdone. Nothing is over-dramatized. You, you get just enough. The, the script, the character development is perfect because you don't need all of this. You, you just step in time for nine months, <clears throat> I think, <throat> March to December 1950. And what is done in that time you don't need anything else. So there was no real wasted, like, where were they going with that? Or did they just miss that in editing? Like, I feel like that was going to go somewhere. And then they never went mm-hmm. back to it. Like, there was none of that. Um, I uh, And I'm a little bit of a weirdo, but I loved the lack of vulgar language. Now, no, I like I, that. I, now, I will say that to prepare, you know, the, not to give anything away, but to prepare some of the people who haven't seen it, there are some racial slurs, but done in a way where it's telling the story. It's really telling the story, right? This is a movie that helps you just completely re-examine the United States of America in 1950, um, where we were at after the big show, what it was like to be an aviator then, you know, these guys are itching. They say all, you know, all these guys came home with this big fruit salad, everything hanging off their chest, you know, after 45. And these guys just barely didn't make it, just graduated Annapolis in November of 45 or whatever it was, you know, and itching for that, but not in an overly um, uncautious way, I guess is what I'm trying to, they don't seem like they're just a bunch of daredevil pilots that are trying to prove themselves in an F8 or, or, or the Corsair. Like it's just, man, guys, it's just so well done. And, and it, there were times that really hit me personally. I have no, uh, I've never been in a Corsair, right. I've never been a Naval uh, aviator. I've never been in air to air combat, but I've lost a very close friend that I served with and the dynamic between the two main guys was so familiar to me because our bunks were that close and I thought so much about my battle buddy seeing this film their interactions were so similar um I never would have thought I'd get that out of a Korea War film about Corsair pilots 
to where wow. a gunner and a driver in a Humvee in Iraq had so many similarities. Um, it, it's just, I can't wait to talk to Adam Akos again. I can't wait to hear if our listeners go see it, chime in, email us, call us. Mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And Do real, it. real quick, yeah. speaking of Korean War and, and coming home from combat, um, one of the things we heard, you know, short little half these guys probably maybe their older brothers their uncles fought in world war ii they were definitely alive during that time they saw the welcome home parades and all that that their relatives had and then when they came home from the korean war no one was around because there was a home watching this new invention called the television they got like no fanfare when they came home from that that war like they just came home to empty streets and empty airports oh yeah here's a camera or two (laughs) Like, Great, welcome back. I don't want to miss the Ed Sullivan show. Get out of the way. Exactly. So, <laughs> and speaking of books, you know, the book pipeline finally opened up for uh, Henry and myself. Shout out to Jeff and his family. I got a little uh, book care package the other day, including uh, A Wing and a Prayer, The Longest Winter, The Longest Day, and Dirty Little Secrets of World War II. So my uh, my library here got a nice little addition to it. So um. I'm actually looking forward to reading the uh, the longest day. So that that's probably the first one of those that I, I dig into, and then obviously the longest winter as well. But thank you so much for those books, fella. Appreciate it. And, and let me let me jump in right behind you, Don, and and echo that, Jeff. I really appreciate the the World War II motorcycle case sitting right there that I showed you. And after I finish the book I'm reading now, because I said I just finished Devotion, I started another book. When I finish it, I think I'm going to read the Charles McDonald Company Commander book because he was at Hurtgen and, and in the Ardennes, I believe. Um, so I'm vitally interested in that. Yeah. I was going to say, I tried to give you guys both, you know, I, I just, I have a lot of duplicates and I tried to give you guys stuff that was, that was a little bit varied that I thought you would be interested in, but at sure. the same time, maybe, maybe broaden the horizon too. Yeah. I didn't want to just give Don Pacific war stuff. And I'm yeah, I'm Henry. Remind me again what I sent you because I remember you, that one. I think you sent me longest day as well. Charles McDonald, um, company commander. Um, oh man, the, did the I not send you if I if you survive George Wilson? Did I not send you that one? I don't think you did. Okay. Okay. I know it's Charles McDonald, company commander. Okay. Um. Which I believe, wasn't he at Hurricane Forest and, and Normandy? And <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I know. I mean, my, my head, they all run together. Uh, yeah, that point. was one I remember reading not maybe two, three years ago. Of course, The Longest Day. Yeah, I've I, I got so many copies of that. Yeah, um, I, got, I know I got that one. Gosh, yeah, I can't think of what I said. But yeah, so enjoy the books. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's... That's what we do, guys. I mean, I get some stuff. People are like, hey, I think you'd appreciate that. Absolutely, thank you. And and to send it on, you know, especially if it's something I I've already read and I feel that it's does me, you know, it does anybody no good having this stuff sit back here. I mean, yes, it helps me. But when I come across something books like that, I mean, I think I told Adam Makos when we had him on, I don't have a copy of a higher call because it's just too good to sit behind me. It had to go to somebody. And it actually went to my uncle, a, a, a an in-law, married in, married my aunt, who lost, he is named after his uncle, wow. who was killed December 16th of 44 at the Bulge. 
So to, to know that, you know, we do have some of that in our, in our family and he's a big aviator. He was a Navy mechanic. He was on the enterprise, um, and then retired from American airlines and, um, a higher call was like a no brainer to send him, uh, for his birthday, not you know, a month or so ago. So, um, yeah, guys enjoy it and, and whatever, pass them on and I'll have more coming your way. You know, I mean, like I said, it does no good here. And, um, so I'm glad y'all liked it. Thank you. And I want to say thanks to everybody to con- who continues to support our podcast. And, um, you know, this, I think we've got maybe one episode left before the end of the year. Um, but I want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support. And if you, as we said earlier, if you want to support the show, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com and click on that Patreon link. Subscribe. Um, I'm going to get a hold of Jeff and Henry off the air. i got an idea for our Patreon members. We're going to do a little recording. It's going to be only for the Patreon members. we got to do a lot more of that stuff. And I have an idea for the holiday season I want to come up. But we'll get to that later. Thank you guys so much. And as always, uh, please email us at mailcalltwtspworldwar2.com, and we will talk to you all soon. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>